Welcome to Ask Andy featuring Andrew Redleaf. Ask Andy is sponsored by Park State Bank. Visit www.parkstatebank.com for all your banking needs. All right. Well, good morning and thanks for having me, Andy. I've thoroughly enjoyed the first 12 podcasts. For the listeners out there, my name is David Saber and I've had the pleasure of partnering with Andy for the last six plus years and founding and leading Park Financial Group and Park State Bank. And Andy, we've talked about a number of potential topics and I think the question for today's podcast is what are relevant rates and really how are you thinking about this? And I know we should also caveat that we're recording this on Monday, March 15th and we know the Fed meets tomorrow and Wednesday in light of recent economic developments. They could well move the dot plot. Interest rates and discussions of interest rates often remind me of discussions of risk in that people will use the word risk and they think everybody knows what they're talking about and they sort of do, but um, it's an amalgam of different things at different times. So risk can mean the worst thing that can happen or the range of likely things that can happen. It can mean between today and tomorrow or over some longer time frame. And they really are, you know, sort of separate things. People say interest rates, there's an amalgamation of all sorts of different things. And when one looks at a fixed income security, it's a bucket of different things, you know. So, for example, in most modeling of financial asset prices, there's an assumption that people get paid f- that they're risk premia, that people get paid um, for taking risk. And again, as I just said, we don't, you know, really know what risk means. So um, often, in that case, it's price volatility. So, you know, longer fixed income instruments have more price volatility than shorter fixed income instruments and therefore in most time frames they carry a higher coupon but we don't necessarily call that higher coupon an interest rate we might call it a term premium we might call it compensation for the inherent volatility of a longer dated security you know similarly private company issues a long-term bond uh, it will be described you know both by its coupon and by the difference between its coupon and a treasury with a a corresponding maturity and that difference is called a credit spread or you know again kind of a risk premia in your econ 101 class and in you know finance papers now people will refer to a risk-free interest rate and it used to be that that was taken to be the treasury rate And it made a certain amount of sense, but there are actually securities that have no credit risk or vanishingly small credit risk, and their yields um, may be materially higher than treasury rates, and they may fluctuate. And it's not necessarily that security that's fluctuating. It's the non-interest value of the treasury that's that's functioning. It's sort of clear post-financial crisis, at least for now, treasuries are universally accepted as collateral behind a whole slew of transactions. And therefore, you know, some of the price of a treasury can be a premium for their use as a facilitator 
in financial transactions. So the interest rate you see on a, on a treasury may well be lower than what the econ book would want to describe as the risk-free rate. Another phenomenon sort of post-financial crisis is that swap spreads, which are sort of an interest rate and sort of not, at the long end of the curve have been persistently and consistently lower than treasury rates. Um, and to the textbooks, that was never supposed to happen. And in a lot of ways, um, uh, it doesn't make sense in that for somebody who can borrow it on a LIBOR basis, it presents a simple, clean arbitrage. One of the explanations is the accounting requirements of insurance companies and pension plans. Essentially, an accounting in general plays a much larger part in the assets and liabilities that people will hold uh, than is you know, imagined in academia and, and even among anyone who isn't actually involved. So pension plans and insurance companies have long dated liabilities that they discount to a net present value based on a long-term interest rate. If long-term interest rates go down, the net present value of that liability goes up, and they're using swaps to hedge an accounting change in the net present value of their liabilities. If they were actually buying treasuries, that would move in on the asset side of the balance sheet too, which they don't want to do. So in certain securities, built into the price is what you might call a balance sheet aesthetics. You know, for any business, certain assets' value will fluctuate on a business's balance sheet and others won't. And there's actually not consistency necessarily across time in the same business or across different securities, um, across different industries. One wants to tease that out in prices one sees for uh, um, fixed income securities. What does it make sense to call an interest rate? What does it make sense to see as something else? And then, you know, as somebody trying to make money, I want to break down those parts and see which is being mispriced, which one I'm getting paid the most for holding and financing, you know, after doing a probability-weighted calculation of all the results. I should actually ask you, though, in some ways, I might be better off not knowing. For us and for other community banks, on our financial statements, how are all of our assets and liabilities recorded and which ones fluctuate on our financial statements? If you think about the balance sheet on the liability side, if we book a CD for somebody, right, that's just booked out, you know, that liability is for the stated A, rate of the CD and term of the CD, right? For the deposit side of it, if we sell a five-year CD and interest rates go up, if it was a CD, we don't mark that liability down and take the change into income, do we? We just take, essentially, it's booked on the balance sheet, right, as a liability we have, and we take the money and put it in cash, right? And and we're going to carry that liability at book for five years. At book for five years, yes. 
independent of what interest rates do and what the market value of a five-year CD with that coupon on it is. Yes. And the same thing for a commercial loan? And the same thing for commercial loan. So if we had somebody that signed up for a, a five-year fixed rate loan, right? That loan's booked at that interest rate at that term and listed as an asset on our balance sheet. As of today, it would be for the next five years, right? Or a 10-year note or a two-year note. So you know the floating rate instruments we have, so think of a line of credit or something like that, You know those fluctuate daily, monthly, quarterly, semi-annually, et cetera. And those will be constantly updated in terms of a rate perspective. But also the maturity dates of those are just kind of real time. But on the other hand, securities in general are marked to the market or we can designate them as held to maturity. And I guess one can keep them at their historic cost if they're marginally impaired, but not permanently impaired. Is that right? Yep, exactly. So our securities book would essentially get marked to market right now on a monthly basis. By and large, the security book would all be kind of classified as held available for sale. There are certain circumstances whereby a bank would transfer security into the held to maturity bucket and would just, you know, designate that held to maturity, right? Mm-hmm. I was going to say for internal processes, there's also, you know, typically when we think about our quarterly kind of asset liability management at the bank, you know, we would assign estimated durations to demand deposits or savings accounts or you know insured investments that you know just based on by and large historic data points for those instruments right so for example a demand deposit could be listed as a liability with an estimated duration of you know 3 to 4 years right when you know it could be called tomorrow actually I think this is actually part of the explanation for why long-dated swaps have an interest rate, which are agreements between parties for somebody to pay a fixed interest rate and somebody to receive it while the other pays or collects a floating interest rate. One can see, and as I said, this has persistently been below treasury rates. Now, from a bank perspective, it's buying a swap which should be thought of as securing their funding rates over an extended period of time versus that from the bank side doing it that way creates a liability that has to be marked to market and injects volatility into quarterly earnings where and on the sell side there's a positive benefit for the um, pension plan and insurance company who is hedging an accounting change on their liability side, the uh, receiving fixed paying floating reduces the volatility on their income statement. And so given those you know, two forces, uh, there's a rationale for swaps trading, uh, or at least an explanation for uh, swaps trading under treasuries. Just as an aside, when I said to dealers, you know, I I'd like to do an intrasensitive securities, you know, like uh, I'd like to essentially um, belong this and uh, uh, fund it with that. You know, they'll say, you won't be able to use hedge accounting. And if I say, you know, I don't care, even if I'm not on Zoom, I can see that they're looking at me like I'm from a different planet. They they for sure are uh, likely looking at you like you're from a different planet uh, on that front. I think it's, you know, 
typically standard, right, to, you know, want to take out the volatility of their earnings streams, uh, of course, in the P&L and balance sheet. And as a result of that, most, in particular, banks, right, would not take on that volatility risk. So one of the things that's interesting now, and I think an opportunity, again, with the caution that when the statement is aired after the Fed meeting, it may look silly. Um, But one of the interesting things that's happening now, the front end of the curve is extremely steep, you know, since um, essentially the Fed has kind of pounded the table that there's no expectation of them to raise interest rates um, until 2023. And economists, I, you know, I think even the Fed dots and a lot of interest rate markets sort of see a 50, 50 basis point increase in the second half of 2023. I mean, because of this, the front end of the curve, the spread between two-year Treasury bills and notes and five, seven, ten is about as steep as it's ever been. And then as one gets to the back end, tens, twenties, thirties, it flattens out. The curve shape gives you a forecast for rates in the future if you assume that there's no inherent kind of um, uh, term premium. From the beginning, that if that's the curve, if people don't care about volatility, if people just care about you know maximizing their expectation of what they'll receive or minimizing their expectation of uh, what they'll pay. So now because the forward ed is so steep, it implies that interest rate curves will invert something three, four, five years mm-hmm. forward. And uh, inverted yield curves are, in fact, pretty rare and it sort of makes sense to believe that people will demand a premium for uncertainty and volatility in the future. So now, in terms of play and what one can get paid for and, and so forth, it sort of makes sense to set up that in the future you'll you'll be able to collect a term premium. So you can buy the term premium for a negative amount now and hopefully sell it at some point in the future. There's a heuristic for businesses and particularly the lower the credit quality, the stronger the heuristic that the credit spread they should pay goes up with maturity. So Verizon just did a massive bond offering to pay for 5G, and I think they did a 10, 20, 30, and a 40. As quoted against treasuries, the spread goes up with each tranche, and and, uh, I think that's probably right for Verizon. And it's certainly right that a business that's just raised money is funded for all sorts of contingencies in the short term, so the probability of their defaulting in the short term is uh, less than their probability of defaulting in out years. But for other businesses, and once again, as you get further out, um, the opposite actually becomes the case. Because, you know, what you're really asking is, given that Company A has not defaulted on its debt between 2021 and 2041, so given that the company has survived the past, you know, 
the past future 20 years, what are the odds that they default in the next 10 versus, you know, 2031 to 2041? And actually, in the uh, sort of standard case, you know, they're probably lower out because they've survived. For lots of companies, you could see that they're current issues. But if they survive the current issues, the, the weather looks sort of better going forward. On the bank lending side, it doesn't really apply in that nobody really asks for Do we have any loans longer than five years? We've got some loans, right, that would have a 10-year term, right, in terms of commercial, typically real estate loans like that. But, but most of C&I loans would be five years and in. Uh, there could be some commercial real estate loans today that would have a, a term of 10 years. It is, you know, back to the long end. 30-year mortgages exist. Banks will write them. The agencies will buy them. So a consumer can borrow for 30 years against their house. Commercial real estate can be financed on a very long-term basis. Investment-grade companies can sell very long-dated bonds, but that's sort of it. Nobody would think of asking for or you know, getting a 25-year commercial loan. Uh, no. You know, I, I think there's some... Uh, you can stretch the amortization schedules out on some of those commercial loans, but the average you know, small business that wants a commercial loan, it's typically five years and in. You know, There are some longer dated maturities that might reprice every five years, but typically would have covenants on it and things like that. But the typical business loans are a lot shorter dated, particularly in the private sector. It's sort of interesting. There's no inherent reason in nature that it shouldn't be doable? Yeah, I think it just hasn't been done, right? And it's probably a little bit like, you know, if you think about the mortgage industry, and, and, and we're a little bit off topic here, and I think I'd have to look into some aspects of this, but if you look back in history, I think, you know, pre-1920s, you know, a lot of mortgages were written three to five years, typically interest only, where you'd buy a house, you'd pay an interest rate on it, and you'd renew that mortgage, you know, every three, five years. I think it started to get extending out to 15 or 20 years then. And then I think in the 50s, there was actually some housing price issues, and, and even with the Fed, I think, on some, some interest rate pieces. And they essentially, as I understand it, I have to look back at this, and this is a public podcast, so I'm a, a little bit leery about talking on the record here. But I think, I believe, they then extended from 15 to 20 years to 30 years to essentially allow people to afford homes. And the agency started buying the paper. And so since then, we've had the 30-year mortgage. So essentially, you're saying that we as a bank could lock in credit today for you know, 10, 20, 30 years, essentially charge a spread to a good credit-worthy borrower, and they would have a fixed rate for 20 or 30 years? Yeah. And I think some banks would think of the optionality of getting out of credits, you know, commercial credits in particular, three, five, seven years. By having them mature, they essentially, you know, have the option of an out, even if they're meeting all their covenants. Right. But it's sort of interesting. If you ask the question, is this something that could be priced? Is there a price at which both parties are happy? Intrinsically, one would sort of think, yes, 
uh, when one sees that it's not happening in the world. You have to ask, is that a phenomenon of nature or is it a phenomenon of structure and rules? Probably structure and rules. Right, right. There's certainly no, there's no blanket prohibition anywhere. No, that's true. I think the question is, would the small business owners agree to pay a little bit of premium to lock in rates for that long of a time frame or would they not? Or how would you, how would you think about that? Well, I would think for business, you know, what they would really be interested in paying and being willing to pay for is you know, availability. Yep, exactly. It's permanent and it's easier and more certain, you know, to just meet your covenants than to renegotiate a deal. Yep. I mean, extensions and new loans are transactionally, it's less intense to make a new loan or or extend a loan to an existing borrower than to want one completely new. But it would be transactionally still less intense to have it done. (laughs) And have it done for a long time, right? No, I mean, to to make one 10-year loan to a business is transactionally less intense than to do two five-year pieces. Uh, Very true. But it's not as transactionally less intense than you might think because, you know, these commercial loan requests are many times very different than one another. And, you know, there is a, I'm going to call it an annual review required, right? So in most cases, when you get to the end of the five-year term, if it's a good client of yours, they're happy with the bank, the bank is happy with the client, you know, it doesn't really mature in year four and a half. You essentially write a new loan for the next five years. And yes, it's additional documentation, et cetera. But I think a lot of banks value the optionality of potentially getting out of the credit over the additional work to issue new paperwork in year five, if that makes sense. But that business is subject to a different rate environment five years down the road, right? So if rates have materially increased, they could be paying a point or two higher uh, depending on where we are in the economic cycle. Right, but it's sort of interesting to me. I mean, I think the banks are sort of misseeing it. Okay. In the sense that, again, you know, like sort of earlier, we talked about there being an interest rate piece and a credit spread piece. Hypothetically, a bank could, you know, lock in a certain credit spread for 10, 20, 30 years. Totally. Completely doable. And not take any interest rate risk. And in terms of, you know, whether they're better off having locked in that book now or rolling, it's a forecast and a guess, but it's symmetric. And they're not doing it. You know, a bank runs the risk that, you know, They'll never be able to collect any credit spread. One of the things I've talked about in the past, that banks have a funding advantage over other businesses in that they have access to deposit insurance and the Fed that ordinary businesses don't. You know, In fact, banks should be selling that that's an inherent part of their product and that they shouldn't inherently be selling that to commercial businesses. Mm-hmm. So I'd be curious on your thought on that commercial credit piece really quick. The credit risk, so if you wipe out the interest rate risk, Andy, and you think about the credit risk piece, you know, how do you mitigate, I, I guess yeah, it depends. I'm trying to think how you mitigate you know, 15 years down the road 
in an environment changing as fast as we are where I'm trying to think of an example off the top of my head. But Well, for lots of businesses, it is right that their um, credit risk is bigger in out years than in current years. But have to think about, you know, like what businesses other than commercial real estate have fewer out-year risks than medium-term risks. Yeah, that, that's what I was trying to think about. I was trying to think about 15 years ago, let, let's just use the community bank example, right? All of them would have underwrote the local car dealer, the local hardware store, the local gas station as great credit risks and probably put on longer-term debt to those business owners. And today, a lot of times in those smaller towns, you know, the hardware stores are closed, those local gas stations are closed, and there's a regional in there. And then, you know, so I'm trying to think through what businesses, you have to think through the staying power of some businesses to weather some of these cycles in, in the out years. There it was really the staying power of the community. No, that's very true. That's very true. But if you had a 60-year-old business and the family was going to sign on the loan, you could probably do a longer-term loan. So your thesis would be that we that we should think about this, right? And think through what makes sense, not exactly what has been a rule. And maybe think through what might be some industries or businesses that could be candidates for essentially longer-term fixed-rate financing, and we can wipe out our interest rate risk on that. Yeah. I have one more quick question for you, just I think people would be interested, Andy, is what are your thoughts just on current credit spreads in general? Well, I think it's interesting. If you look at the, the most widely traded high yield indexes, the CDX HY, CDX high yield, the index gets recreated, rebalanced every six months. It has a hundred representative names across industries. If you look at the middle 60 percentiles, so so you throw out the tightest credit, 20 credits, and that 100 names, and you throw out the widest 20 names. So you're looking at the 60 in the middle. And then those 60 names are not dispersed enough. And then, you know, among those 60, you look at the 30 that's sometime in the last 10 years have had the widest credit spreads. The spread between those 30 and the other 30 is the thing that's really too tight. Companies outside of you know energy and retail, AT&T is a triple B credit, but I think GM is too. But the you know, sort of the spread between AT&T and GM mm-hmm. is too tight. Thank you for listening to Ask Andy. If you would like to submit a question, please email askandypodcast at gmail.com. Ask Andy is sponsored by Park State Bank. Visit www.parkstatebank.com for all your banking needs.